Let's go, hey Joe. Let's go, hey Joe. Let's go, hey Joe. Let's go. Welcome to Hey Joe, a brand new podcast where we'll be talking to the expat movers and shakers that have decided to call China home. Each week we'll be talking to a special guest and get their insights on the nation that is set to become the next superpower. We'll be getting the backstories, the current stories, and the survival tips on how to live in this vast country. So, if you live in China, thinking about living in China, or are simply curious to see what makes this place tick, this is the show for you. As well as special guests, each week we'll be deconstructing China, looking at the bizarre differences and the startling similarities, with the view to giving you all the info you need on this fascinating culture. So hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Hey Joe. Today we've got a DJ, rock and roll star, video maker, songwriter, event organizer, editor. That's China. All round good egg, David K. David, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me here in your man cave. So how long have you been in China for now, Dave? I've been in China for five years now. Five years. Yeah. Wow, you've done a lot in five years. Jeez, I thought it was longer than that. Yeah, it's been quite an action-packed five years.、Um, I, we rolled up here in、uh, early 2012,、uh-huh. and now we're in 2016.、Um, What brought you over here? What was it? My wife Ursula.、Um, she got a.、Uh, she's a fashion designer, and she had a mysterious email one day、um, asking her to come to London to attend an interview for a job, and、uh, the job. Happened to be in Hangzhou, China, and、uh, we'd never heard of the place before. And、um, which, you know, it just sounded like a good opportunity. So Ursula, we drove down to London, and、uh, <clears throat> yeah, she had the interview. And a couple of months later, we were touching down in、uh, Hangzhou International Airport. Fantastic! All right, let me take you back a little bit further. Then, so what what were you doing before you came to China? What was What's your background in the UK? Well, immediately before I came to China, I was、um, working in a uh, female uh, psychiatric hospital. Wow! Bizarrely, wow! I was working.、Uh, <clears throat> I'm not qualified in any way to give advice or help、uh, women with、uh, psychiatric problems, but I was wor- <laughs> I was just working on、uh, the reception, right? Which was quite a、um, unusual job. Full of, as you can imagine,、uh, quite an eye opener. Yeah, yeah, and, and、um, there's a lot of procedures because there's a lot of keys and doors in、uh, these kind of facilities. Oh right, and、so、you, you have to be very, very careful who gets what keys and which doors are open at what times. So there was a lot of like long term. What do you, you don't call them inmates, do you? They don't call them inmates. That's that's not the person. <clears> like, I don't know, residents. I think this one was more like a residential place, and some people can come and go. Right, and some people、uh, have less, are more restricted. The movements are more, you know, depending on the severity of their problems, I suppose. Yeah.、Um, and I actually got fired from that job just before I ended in. I, I we got the news we were going to be going to China, so I was like, right, I'm going to pack this in.、Mm-hmm. I was only working there like、uh, I think maybe three or four days a week, kind of like a stopgap job, I suppose. Because at that point, I was still,、uh, you know, pursuing a music career. Yeah, what, 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 where were you up to with the music career at, th- at that point when you were in the UK? Because I've been reading some of your, your bios, and holy crap, I saw I saw a photograph yesterday actually on your, on your Facebook profile when you're playing at、um, Earl's, not Earl's, Earl's Court, Astoria. Astoria, yeah, Jesus is, Christ, man, what was that? What band was, was that with? 
It's not there anymore, story. That was a great venue in London. Uh, we were, I was in a band uh, called Tiny Dancers, um, probably from maybe 2004 to 2007. And uh, we were like a uh, kind of a poppy, kind of um, country, indie, indie band. And um, yeah, we, had, we, got, uh, we got signed to Parlophone. And it was, you know, really amazing time. Now, how does that happen? Because I've been a struggling musician all my life and I've been, I've been in cover bands and original mm. bands and we thought when we got in, when I started the original the originals band we thought we're going to get signed in no time we had so much belief in the thing and then we just found that we were getting knocked back all the time we'd send out <laughs> stuff to record companies demos to record companies not one of the, actually once Tony Wilson came to watch us and said that we were too much like Oasis and then just, you know oh yeah the typical <laughs> prick that he was but um, yes yeah, so how do you get signed well we um, <clears throat> I was also in a doing that kind of thing. I was in a few bands before uh, Tiny Dancers and um, similar kind of situation, just not not getting any, uh, not making any progress in terms of getting the kind of hallowed record deal. Yeah. Which these days is less seems less of a thing, you know, now with the internet, music on the internet and, uh, you know, record labels, are, um, although still massively important, have less power than they used to do. Right. But... This was, yeah, so back in 2004, 2005, it was the sort of dying days of... Uh, ah, just before the self-publishing yeah, side of the internet. Yeah, so it was still like a big deal. And anyway, it happened really quick. I think mm, we got a... Um, the rehearsal room where we used to uh, practice, the owner of the rehearsal room, a woman named Karen, she... Um, was a band manager as well, and she had a lot of contacts in the industry. Yeah. And um, she kind of took a shine to us and she immediately wanted to manage us. She saw something in us and um, she orchestrated the whole thing, really. It was really quite amazing. She um, So she had the contacts and things like yeah, that? Yeah, she worked. She, she made sure we were practicing like five days a week, you know. Whoa. But at this point, we'd actually not done a gig. Right. We were just in the rehearsal room and so we were very careful. It was all kind of very well planned, you know. We weren't, we were... We weren't just playing everywhere, mm-hmm. you know. We're actually, we, if we played, we'd make sure the show was right, the room was right, and we'd invite people down or uh, up from London. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, before that, we invited people. The manager invited people to our rehearsal room right. to, to see us play. Yeah. So in this way, she developed a really big buzz actually about the band, and we had all of the major record labels coming up to see us play. Really? Yeah. Coming uh, up to Sheffield. Coming up to Sheffield, coming in. in wow, out, that's in a big thing yeah. for, for, for a London-based record company to send up some all A&R of them, guys. All of them, EMI, uh, Warner Brothers, XL. Um, I can't remember all of them, but all of the major record labels and the big independents were coming up, sitting on the floor, and we'd blast through um, half an hour of material, and then we'd chat, and then they'd go, and then they'd go back to London and tell the mates, I've seen this band... And it just creates... I think she just really created a buzz. That's you know? cool. Yeah. So what was a standout... What was a Tiny Dancer's standout track? What was the track that you thought, right, this is going to hook them, this is going to get these guys? Well, we had a song called I Will Wait For You, which was probably his most poppy track, mm-hmm. and that did actually uh, become a single. All right, let's have, a, let's have a quick listen to that then.
so really quite quickly we, we got we, we had to make a decision because we actually started to get offers on the table. Wow. Um, and these Multiple were, offers from different record yes, companies. We, it was really crazy. Like we, <clears throat> Could we you believe it. it at the time? I bet no, we were just floating on cloud surreal. nine. You know? Yeah, I can imagine. And um, eventually we decided to go with uh, Parlophone, you know, which is, you know... EMI. Huge, well, they, EMI. EMI, EMI and, you know, it's just a huge label. You got, you got uh, you know, down the ages, uh, you know, Beatles, the Radiohead, Beatles. Uh, Coldplay were on the... Parlophone and first few records and just countless other acts. You know, they're a major, huge institution in England. And uh, so, it was, yeah, we were just buzzing. And, um, so what do they do when you, get, when, you get, when you get signed up <clears> to, a big, to a big label like Parlophone? What do, they, what do they do? Do they take you in the studio? Do they give you, like, do they pay you a salary? Do, you, do they give you an advance? Yeah, they, they gave us... Do they us... buy you new guitars and things? Do oh, they... yeah, we, they, they took... We, we were we were like kids in a candy shop. We were t- taken to Denmark Street. No way! We just, Denmark we, Street's a big musical I- instruments. Uh, yeah, yeah, like street in, in London, little uh, street in London where there's a, a good bunch of uh, amazing guitar shops. One, they just said, "There you go." Fill open your checkbook. boots. Yeah, just open checkbook. <laughs> it was amazing. You know, we just buy, buying. And what was the image of the band? Was the image cultivated, or did you did the did the record company give you any direction with the image, or were you? They left you alone as far as that was concerned. Uh, yeah, they left us alone. Uh, we were we were kind of a little quirky, like on stage. We'd um, we'd spend time decorating the stage before we played with uh, all kinds of trinkets and lights and and like sort of nice. uh, flaming lips kind of style. Yeah, yeah, and we'd have balloons and we'd have like uh, big bags full of glitter and we'd like we'd come out on stage and kind of like Adam and the Ants a little bit. We'd have, like, war paint on and we'd run through the crowd and, like, dump balloons and glitter in everybody. So it was a happening. It was an event. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we tried to do that and, uh, yeah, it was working and, and, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then... Tell us about the the John Leckie connection because I don't know if you guys know, but John Leckie, like, is a a legendary producer um, in the UK. I mean, he's, he's, he's produced bands from Pink Floyd, Radiohead... Travis, the Stone Roses, things like that. Mm, yeah, you, he did Stone Roses' debut album, which is yeah, one of which the best is, which albums is, of all time. Yeah. How the hell did you get involved in, with him? Well, it's <clears throat> same kind of thing, really. We had a gig in uh, London Barfly, and uh, we knew that John, the label advice, and, and he, because he's a, he, he does a lot of parlophone stuff, so we invited him to come and see us. And after the show, we sat down for a drink with him, and he was just up for doing the record, and uh, and. Um, we just thought, okay, let's do it with this guy because uh, you know he's, he's a really nice guy. He likes the music. And, Have you uh, guys heard of him before? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. yeah. Like uh, fans of some of the records he's done. Um, so, what was it like working with him? Was this was this for the, the debut album? Was this... Yes, yeah. And this sounds like a fairy tale, mate. Seriously, yeah, no, it so was, far, it's... it was, it was, it was a fairy tale. Every boy's, every boy was in a band. It was the dream. Yeah, our, yeah. our dream came true, and it was, you know, it was amazing and. So, so take me through day one of the of the recording. What, what John Leckie? What did you? I mean, what 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 was the dynamic in the in the studio? And what, what well, did you do? Well, he spent a week or two in Sheffield with us. He'd come up for a few days and then go back down to London. And that was like pre-production. So we'd go through the songs and we'd work on the songs and maybe take bits out. Or but it, it not it's not very hands-on. It'd be more like yeah, this bit's a bit boring, you know. Yeah. Maybe, Cut this bit out, or yeah, maybe it. you can do something else here. So then we'd just try some other ideas and then and then he'd be like yeah okay we need to go to the chorus 
here. You know, just like structuring the songs more than anything else. Yeah. And then the, the recording studio was also a, a pretty amazing experience. We recorded in sawmills in Cornwall, which is a legendary oh, yeah. recording studio. I think that's where uh, Stone Roses recorded their debut album too. And I know Supergrass recorded uh, Aisha Coco there. And, wow. Uh, I think like Led Zeppelin used to record there back in the day. And uh, Jesus, so what's it, what's it like? What's the studio like? It's like a residential place, a big old pink cottage, and you can only get there by boat. So you yeah, have to, I've yeah. seen this Oasis recorded. Definitely, maybe there as well. Parts of it, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you have to load all your gear into a little boat, like a little fishing boat, <laughs> like under the cover of night, and you go over this little bay. And there's a pub. On the, a, once you're on the, once you're in that in, in the studio, yeah. the, the only pub is accessible by the boat to go back. Yeah, over which the is you know. As its benefits for <laughs> concentration reasons. I've seen open. the whole studio. It's an amazing looking studio. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, recording the album there was like one of the best times of my life. Right. We were there for like a couple of weeks and then we'd go on tour and come back for another couple of weeks. And while you're there, you're getting all your meals cooked for you and you all eat together in the, in the you know, on the terrace. And uh, you've just got nature all around you. So it's... Uh, you know, so, so you were touring at the same time. So you yeah. were, you were supporting bands at this yeah. stage. You, you were you, you didn't have enough fans to get your your own shows, but you were supporting things. That... Right, we did like a his own tours, uh, small t- no, toilet tours, I guess. Yeah. Um, but that's really important. And actually, looking back, we should have done more touring. I think before we recorded the album. What to get yourself a bit more to, tighter or. Uh, we were pretty tight, but more just to build up fan base and, and to to grow as a band. I think we should have done more. We did a lot, but we should have done more before we went in the studio. Yeah. But I guess they wanted to capture lightning, so right. they, had, they wanted to do it quick. Yeah. So, but this was in the stage before the internet. So the yeah. promotion-wise, you were at the behest of the record company to do all the promotion for you. Was that? Yeah. Well, I mean, we had his MySpace and everything like that. <clears throat> MySpace. MySpace God, was yeah. big big then, and yeah. Arctic Monkeys had kind of just gone to number one around the time that time with their first single oh, right and they did it that through myspace yeah as well, didn't they? and i think that made a lot of the record industry people look to sheffield you know right they were thinking like oh sheffield sheffield's happening yeah so uh, there was actually a number of bands from sheffield who got signed right uh, at that point so we, in a way we were kind of riding on a wave of uh, enthusiasm for all things sheffield yeah. thanks to the Attic monkeys <clears throat> although our music is completely different um, and we, re- yeah, we supported uh, Richard Ashcroft on a major, yeah, major tour, yeah. And he was a... How was, how was he? Yeah, he's... He, he seems a totally cool... Yeah. He's almost like a guru when you hear him. Yeah. He's so... No, he is. He's Knowledgeable like, and so... He, he is. He's like, so spiritual as well. He is, yeah. Very spiritual guy. And, um, I mean, we didn't hang out with him uh, a lot because, you know, we're the support band and he's the star and you don't want to be... Uh, He's, he's a huge team. Yeah, you know, right. And it's a big, big thing. So we're just kind of staying. Was that the Vervy kind of time? Was that, that his solo time? Yeah, the solo, like, song for lovers, and uh, it was like oh, that right. era. Yeah. But, you know, he'd play some Verve songs and stuff, so weird. So what's life on the road like? What, what, did it meet every expectation of yours? The cliches, the groupies, the free, <laughs> the free booze and the drugs and the whatever you want? Or do you not want to talk about that? Well, no, I mean, mostly, yeah. I mean, you can really, I mean, one of the good things about this kind of, when you signed, you're really just paid to misbehave, really. I mean, you're encouraged to get drunk in the afternoon and and get off your tits, and as long as you can still do the show. Yeah. Um, But we were quite good, actually. Um, 
None of us were really into drugs yeah. at all. Uh, and uh, like most of us had, like, girlfriends. Right. Uh, so we were quite... I mean, we had fun, but we were we weren't, like, Motley Crue. Yeah, yeah. Or something like that. Over-clichéd. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, it must it was, have been an exciting time. Where can people hear this, by the way? Uh, it's, it's on that, you know, iTunes and... Um, iTunes, Thai Dancers. Yes, yeah. Free, Free School Milk was the name of the record. Free School Milk. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, nice one. Excellent. Um, so you've been in China for five years, since, since uh, 2011. Um, yes, right, yeah. It was uh, 2011, 2012. Because, so <clears throat> yeah, this podcast is meant to be about... Um, Chinese experience of expats, so yeah. to bring it back to the theme, but you know, it's nice to give you some background because just before moving to China, um, the band unfortunately we split up in about 2008. So then I quite quickly started a band with uh, Ursula, right? Who had married at that point, yeah. Um, oh, you got married in the UK, yes, right? Back in 2008, we were married, and so I started this new band called Party Horse which was very different from Tiny Dancers. It was uh, more electronic and a bit more on the edge and uh, more uh, fun, I guess, uh, yeah. whatever. And um, so we did that and then, yeah, and then we got the move to China. And right. uh, so then we, we carried on doing music in China for a little while with Party Horse. And then now I'm also doing uh, my new band, Junks. Junks. Which yeah. we kind of did some things last year and now we kind of, we got a new member in, so we uh getting that ready. But with, and with Party Horse, you played to, I, I remember hearing about you guys, uh, you played to some big audiences over here at some big festivals in, in, yeah. in, in, in China. Yeah, again, we got lucky with Party Horse. We met some a girl called Sue and um, yeah, she was uh, an age, she's an agent and she had a lot of contacts at festivals, so you know, quite quickly we got slots at midi and strawberry festival and westlake music festival so we're yeah like it's really good like playing in front of like you know i don't know like when you get an audience in china you get an audience yeah exactly you turn up at these festivals and you know people are crazy and there's big crowds yeah what do you think about the chinese music scene in general i think it's great i think i think um there's a really a lot of potential here there's some great djs great bands only problem is in Hangzhou, there's not so many venues like we have in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. You know, we don't have that kind of culture yet. Yeah. So it's, uh, that's a bit behind, but the talent's there for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because Hangzhou's a little bit um, different to places like Shanghai. Although we're only like 100 kilometers south of Shanghai, Hangzhou is a bit more of a kind of villagey mentality to the, to the, yeah. to the town. It's a huge city. I mean, the city's bigger than Manchester. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a huge city, but the kind of resources for creativity aren't quite there. In Shanghai, okay, there's venues on every street corner in, in Shanghai and, you, and it's got quite a flourishing art scene, but mm. what do you think about the whole art scene in general in, uh, in, in Hangzhou? I think it's strong. I mean, you've got Chinese, China Academy of Arts, so you've got a lot of art students here, uh, which, you know, bleeds over into the music world because a lot of uh, those students are also uh, uh, messing around with music mm -hmm. and... Um, I think, yeah, I think it's a cultural thing here. Like, Hangzhou is not... It's it's kind of a... Um, how can you say it? Maybe more of a conservative city in that way. Like, for example, in Beijing, you, that live music scene up there is really strong. Right. And there's venues that have been there for a long time. Yeah. And they've got more of a kind of uh, fuck-you attitude up there. A right. A bit more punky spirit, which is good for music. 
Whereas down here, it's a bit polite. And a bit more laid back. Laid back, maybe too laid back for its own good. Um, so what, what do you find that the um, external influences are on the, on the, the Chinese organic music scene? What do you find? You know, because obviously, like, if you're, if you're in a band in the UK, from the Beatles up to, up to now, you're influenced by American music, you're influenced by European pop music and things like that. What, what sort of countries do they look at? For influence. Well, one thing I've noticed in Hangzhou is that post-rock is very big and they have a lot of uh, sort of Scandinavian uh, post-rock bands coming here. And, right. And also the, the electronic music scene here is growing because I've been... Because I've not been performing live with uh, my various bands as much as I would like to or used to, that's when I started to get into DJing yeah. as just a way of... Uh, Playing with music, yeah, you know, yeah, and getting out and getting on stage and. So dancing. going back to party horse because I remember, um, I'm interested in the because you you made it in the UK and then you came over here and within a very short time you were doing these big gigs and festivals. I used to be in a band in Hangzhou. I was in the first Western band in Hangzhou maybe like ten, eleven years ago, right? And I found it really easy to get you know, to get gigs and to get interest in, in things. Because yeah. one, there was, a, there was a, a big expat community over here that wanted to see a Western sort of band. But how do you find it in party or Did you find it easier? Because you've got the experience in the UK of making it in, a, in an original band. How did you find that experience over here? Um, yeah, I also found it quite easy. Um, I think we were uh, lucky in a way um, because we met Sue, who could help us get some really good uh, festival slots. Um, we didn't really play so many shows in Hangzhou. I've, I've never liked playing shows where I live. Right. I'm a bit weird like that. Right. I like to play elsewhere. What, you don't want um, a familiar audience sort of thing? I just find it more... I find it a bit uncomfortable playing with, like, playing somewhere where you know people. Right. I like... See, I'm the opposite. Right. I would rather... I, I want to... I think it's an insecurity thing, cause I mean, but I think I like to play... I'm all, whenever we play, I'm always on the phone, come on, are you coming around? Yeah. You know, because I like to have a, a front row of people that I know. But Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. So you like yeah, the challenge like of that. having a... Yeah, I like strangers. Strangers are good. They don't know you. That's you good. And you don't feel like... You can just do something different and no one no one knows what you really like or don't know the details of your yeah, normal so you, life. And you, So you, in that way, you feel like when you go on stage, you can be something different. And I like yeah, that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah I like that's that. good. And your, 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 the, the party horse image was very visual as well. I was thinking yeah. that your image like precedes you. You've got like, long platinum blonde hair. Uh, you're seldomly seen without a baseball cap. Uh, yeah. It's a startling image then. So where did that come from? Uh, well, I think I've always liked to, I don't know, I guess dress up, for want of a better phrase. But um, I think when I was a teenager... I was like into Oasis and everything like that because I was, you know, young at that time. But style, it was more like sporty gear, I guess, at that yeah, point. Yeah. You know, lad, like quite laddish. Fred Perry and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I remember when The Strokes came out, like in year 2000 or 2001, that's when I thought, wow, like I really like. That was a landslide. They were yeah. super cool. I remember So the Strokes, I just thought, yeah. okay, that's my style. Right. So I, at that point, I was like wearing the like. You know, the, the New York chic yeah, leather like jacket. Yeah, leather jacket or like granddad blazer with like a, a tie and uh, stuff like that. And then, yeah, just over time, now I'm more into like 80s kind of things. And uh, So did the image grow with the music? Yeah, you know, for you... me, it's always hand in hand. Like I really, I think I get a lot of fun, like just every day just wearing clothes, you know. Yeah. And I like, 
I think it's important. It's something that you can do, like just your own image. I think it's, it's something you're fun. in control of, and it's something yeah. you can. Yeah, yeah, especially when you do that with music. I, if I go see a band, I want the band, you know. I'm the same. I want a visual experience. Yeah, I like well. a visual experience. I like the band to look like they're from the same, like a gang or something yeah. like this. And, yeah, band and, of the brothers sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And not like when you step off stage, you don't like take off these. Yeah, and you get clothes. changed into your jeans and t-shirt. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. not like that. It's, it's just like it's genuine. Just, yeah. It's just an extension of who I am and how I dress. And uh, yeah, I don't know why I'm like that. It's I think. It's just, I think, because, like, you know, growing up with people like, uh, you know, David Bowie and um, and The Strokes and, and uh, all different kinds of really larger-than-life, colourful bands and acts, it just... It's almost like you're creating a persona. You're, yeah. you're almost feeding your ego. I think this is what the best bands do. They exaggerate a certain... Yes. It's still part of their personality, but yeah. they exaggerate that side exactly, to become yeah. this yeah. super... Like, like Bowie is the perfect example. Yes. It's like that kind of, you know, the Ziggy kind of, yeah. you know, the, creating an image. Yes. And then, like, what well, he did was killing the image. But I think yeah. the, the, the best bands are all the, always those sort of things. And it's mm-hmm. the same thing with songwriting as well, is you always exaggerate a feeling that mm-hmm. you've got. You're trying to bring something out of a, 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 a you know, in, in, in a song. But with the with the, the, the image, because, I mean, I think a lot of the listeners will have seen you around and... Um, uh, it looks like you've got a love of the 80s culture and it's an influence mm. that's like omnipresent in your, the music and, and, and your art. What do you think the 80s gave us and who are your kind of cultural icons from, from that time? Um, I think they just, I like the, if, it seems, because I was only, you know, too young to remember the 80s, but um, I was alive then. So I guess I it's probably seeped into my subconscious, but... When you watch like uh, '80s movies or you see '80s uh, pop videos, and like when MTV blew up in the early '80s, and it just got this uh, very open, free, positive visual style, which I think was killed by Britpop in a way. Do you think a lot of it is the naivety of the '80s? Because when I look at yeah. back at the '80s, I, I I love watching you know watching old TV shows from the mm. '80s, reading old stories from the '80s, and I think a lot of it is because when I was in the 80s, I was, in mid, I, was, I was a teenager in the 80s, and it's almost like it takes you back to that naive time when, yeah. you, you know, and it's as old Britpop was like the cynical, you know, the yeah. working class boys, yeah. you know. Football, guitars, no yeah. keyboards or no anything. Keyboards. No, like, doing your hair. And, no, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it all became, yeah. you know. You know, for example, like a band like Human League were really like, you know, and Sparks and uh, OMD. They, yeah. Oasis really, and that kind of movement, really just put an end to that kind of, like, uh, yeah. you know, flouncing around on stage or whatever. Yeah. And it's a shame, but... So now, I think for me, that kind of music, um, that music that's got some kind of, like, uh, 80s feeling just helps me recreate that kind of uh, mindset you're in when you're, when, you're in it, when you're a child, I suppose. Yeah. That kind of free and innocent and uh, very, very bright and colourful. Yeah. It's also in the music with, 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 yeah. with Party Horse. Let's play a Party Horse song. I mean, which, which song do you think is your standout track for, for Party Horse? I guess Laser Beam would be. Laser so we, Beam. Yeah, we can right. play that. And you did a video for that. You can find that on YouTube as well, we can't did, you? Yeah. That's on there. So, okay, let's have a listen to that. <laughs> It's alright 
how do you find the Chinese audiences when you when you when you DJ, for example? Because the kind of stereotype of the Chinese people is that they're quite conservative and they yeah. don't really like to do anything unless other people are doing it. How do you find the younger Chinese generation when you're doing a DJ set? Mm. Are they kind of loose or are they, what do they... Yeah, very loose. And same when I play the band here, like for me, more open-minded and ready to have fun than in the UK where people are maybe a bit cynical. Yeah, too cool for school. Yeah, too cool for school. And in China, it also depends what parties you play. You have to choose wisely. Yeah. You know. Okay, then. Well, what, what tips would you give any any foreigner live, uh, living in China who, who's yeah. musical, who's got the talent but hasn't yet kind of gone out there and done a gig or and he's thinking about doing it? What what advice yeah. would you would you give give to them? I think you just should go out there and do it. Um, find the right venue for your kind of music. Yeah. You know, there's no point playing techno in a hotel lobby or mm-hmm. playing an acoustic song in a club. You've got to find the right audience. And I think that, you know, I think same with any kind of art, really, or performance, uh, go do it. Yeah. You won't be perfect. Just get out there and do it. You'll get better. You'll learn. You know, they always say that, you know, half an hour on stage is worth like 10 yeah. hours in the rehearsal room. Big so, time. yeah. Yeah, excellent. All right, so um, you're a family man here in Hangzhou. I am. Married to Ursula, like I said, in, in, in the UK. In what, what, when, how long have you been married? Nearly 10 years now? Uh, uh, seven years. We were married in 2008. Right. You've got a couple <clears> of nippers, a couple of kiddies, Dee Dee and Freddie. Yeah. Now, how do you find bringing up a family in China? Because it's a, it, it's, it's a huge thing, I think. It's a huge challenge because... Um, the language is stacked against us. Yeah. The whole, all the services in town are, are, are key towards mm. Chinese people. How do you find it in general? Yeah, it's, it up? can be very difficult. Uh, I have to admit. Um, do you have like an IE that looks? Because I know a lot of expats. We yeah. do. Uh, when we go to work, an IE is like a, a maid or a, or a nanny. A lot of foreign people over here kind of have yeah. the nanny so that the parents can go to work and things. Yeah. So. And you know, one of the good things is that you can do that and afford that whereas in the UK that would be quite a luxury I think yeah yeah but you'd have your family there to to take the slack anyway so just as a how much does it cost for a, for a nanny for a, uh, for a month, would you it can be between sort of 3,500 RMB a month which is roughly around 350 pounds yeah. to about 5,000 yeah depending on uh, and they're a big help yeah huge like we go to work and you know uh, our IE is with uh, Freddie, the youngest, and the, now Dee Dee goes to kindergarten. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she, we've known her for a long time. She was she first used to look after our dog, and then when we had children, we asked her if she can also uh, help us look after the kids. And uh, So she just comes at, like, half past eight in the morning and then leaves at four or five o'clock. Five days a week? So. Yep. Yeah. Great. Brilliant. What other, what other benefits do you find <clears throat> in China that you wouldn't find elsewhere? For, you know, like in, if you lived in the U.K., I mean, living in the UK, what, what I found when I was living in the UK was it was very much hand-to-mouth. You were living very mm. much, you were paying the mortgage and you, you had very little sort of like time, extra money, things like that. Yeah. What, what are the benefits about living in, in China? What, what the well, in terms of having a family, I, 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 don't, I don't have any experience having a family in England. Mm-hmm. So I can only really go on what I feel and what I've seen. But living in China with or without a family, um, yeah, you have, for example... Like this year, I've been on like two or three holidays already. Wow! You know, yeah. Um, every weekend, we most weekends we're able to go 
do something fun, maybe get on a train, go to a different place, yeah. go to some uh, event. And I think I think you just have a lot more freedom in this way, don't you? Yeah, it's just yeah. less it's less buttoned down in a way. Quite ironic that I find that as well. That yeah, the, the, you wouldn't think that would you? More freedom in a, yeah. com- a so-called communist country than there is back home. There's a yeah. lot more limitations back in the UK. I, I think. Yeah, it's also it feels like you're kind of living off the grid in a way. It, yeah, it's life here. That's interesting because there is like an isolationist kind of yeah. feel to foreigners, yeah. like expats yeah. living living here. Not so much in the big cities like Shanghai or Beijing yeah. because there's a big you know, the, the more of a multicultural society or culture up there. Mm. Somewhere like Hangzhou, which Hangzhou's very much like, very more, it's it's very, um, very similar to lots of other Chinese big cities. The Shanghai's and the Beijing's are the exceptions to the rule, aren't they? I mean, yes. the most, most Chinese big cities are like Hangzhou, where it's a very small um, expat community. Yeah. And... And, you know, and, and that comes with a lot of difficulties because, you know, in terms of, like, going to the hospital or whatever, yeah. you know, if you don't speak Chinese, it's very difficult yeah. to, you know... And day-to-day, it's no problem, right? Yeah. If you go into the bar, to the restaurant, you know, you can get by, no big deal. But when you go into the hospital or something like... And with know, kids, I mean, like... Yeah, you know, so it makes it very difficult. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? How do you, how do you get... You know, um, how do you go about, like, if... if if the kids are ill and you go to the hospital, how do you go about explaining the symptoms? Do you have somebody, do you have a translator? That you well, you just have to hope that the doctor can speak a little bit of English, first of all. Yeah. And some of them do. Yeah. And if they don't, then uh, you, using basic Chinese or uh, hand gestures... Yeah, yeah, you just can, get the message across. Yeah, and, and, and or you'll, if it's something that you can't express, you just get someone on the phone. Right, yeah. It's not ideal, but, you know, you've got to just take the pros with the cons. I think, with, you know, me and Ursula have discussed this a lot you know when you have a, when you have kids here it's do you want to stay here yeah you know because it'd be in many ways easier back home right but we but like the, the the freedom you get here it's hard to explain really you're kind of just living in a in a very unique uh headspace in china which it's almost like you're free of responsibility in a way yeah even though you've got children and that's a big responsibility yeah you people <laughs> Because you don't know what the hell you're doing. You yeah, can't yeah. communicate. People just very, they want to help you, yeah. you know, and they want you to have no problem. Yeah. So I find it very, I, li- I really like living here. All right, so what, what, what are your plans for the future then? Well, yeah, I think we're going to stay in China a little while, but yeah, we, we're thinking about schools, mm-hmm. which is probably something for another podcast. But, yeah. um, you know, as the kids get older, your priorities change a little bit, but... Uh, we're just happy, you know, we, we still, we very, we want to do what we like to do. And yeah. uh, China lets us do that. So uh, we'd be very hesitant to leave. Yeah. But we may, of course, have to one day. Yeah. Could be soon, could be a little, could be later. Uh, because, you know, you got to think about other things, really. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thanks a lot, David. It's been it's been amazing talking to you. Getting You're welcome. Getting the top tips about being a family man and a rock and roller in, in China. Okay, so in this section of the podcast, Mything the Point, we are going to tackle a different kind of myth each week about China because, you know, a lot of people maybe uh, living outside of China have certain ideas about uh, some big things in China or small things in China they've heard about. And uh, we're living inside China, so we're going to talk about some of these things and try and uh, debunk the myths or otherwise with the help of our resident 
Chinese expert Juliet. Say hello, Juliet. <laughs> Hi. Dave, so nice having week me. We're going to talk about the single child policy or the one child policy, which right. everyone seems to think. The myth is let's explain the myth first of all. The myth is that um, every Chinese married couple is only allowed to have one child. Right. Where yes. did this myth come from, first of all? Well, it's called one child policy. So, well, yeah, it, actually, <clears throat> actually, we um, call it family plan, I think. That's the direct translation. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, but to make it um, easier to understand, I think the English translation then got, uh, then became one child policy. So for a lot of people that just heard about this term. That's a bad, so it's a translation it's, fail it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. It's loaded with. Um, it should have been like a family planning policy. Yeah. Would have been a. Exactly. Yeah, you still see that on, um, on some documents, yeah. I think. So when was it brought in? I think late 70s, I yeah. believe. That's right, yeah, I think it was 1979, something like that. Yeah. And what was it to do? Curb the, oh, obviously, curb the increase in population? Yeah, because uh, my parents' generation, so my parents were born in the 50s, mm. uh, it's very common for them to have you know, four or five siblings at that time. Right. Um, so the population in China just got to the point that we could not hold so many people anymore. Yeah. So then yeah. something had to be done. So in a way, it was a, it was a, a necessary thing to do uh, in order for the population to the population increase to steady off to plateau or to or to, to, to bring it back to a manageable right it's just state. we ha- we had too many people yeah i mean Mo- seems... a lot of people didn't have any jobs and yeah uh, and just... start starving not enough food oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it seems perfectly like a good idea yeah you know absolutely. which probably yeah. helped lift millions of people out of poverty yeah. in the long run but yeah you know in another country if you floated around this kind of idea uh, in, in at least in the Western world and elsewhere, it would be uh, it'd be a big no-no. But if you think yes. about it, I mean, it's like how many? What's the population of China now? One point one point four billion. One point four billion. Yeah. You can do the maths, and and you think if there wasn't this, it wasn't this, the, the one-child policy or the family planning policy, you could double, triple yeah. that now. And easily. The resources are, yeah, I mean, yeah, the easily. resources and the jobs and things like that. There aren't enough. Yeah. So in that sense, I think. China really did the whole world a big favor. Yeah, I that's true. Think. Yeah. yeah, but I wonder what the you you won't be able to answer this, Juliet. But what I wonder what the response to the uh, when the policy was introduced. I'm curious. Yeah, were people like, yeah, good idea? Well, um, like, from Whoa. from what I heard from my parents and then some of um, some older people that I talked to, um, I think on a personal level. Um, like my mom, for example, she uh, wanted to have more than one child, but she was just not really able to because of the policy. So it's quite painful for her when she had the abortion. Um, yeah. But then I think everybody did understand. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think people understood why the government had to do such things. So. And I suppose if they didn't like it, then there's not really much they could do about it anyway, right? Right. But if we can go back one step there, the single... Yeah. Pa- Single-child policy never really existed. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was. It Let's wasn't na- the myth. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a, a nationwide yeah. one-child policy, was it? Well, that's something uh, that mainly concerns people from um, big cities. Right. So, around, actually, only around thirty-six percent of the population are subject to a restricted one-child policy in China. Oh. Yeah. So, and then the rest of the people who are not restricted. Um, to this policy are like uh, ethnic min- minorities, which is about nine percent of the whole population, right. and fifty-three uh, percent of the population <coughs> could 
um, get permission to have a second child if the firstborn was a girl. Right. And also in some rural areas, this policy wasn't uh, implemented. And there are some other ex- examples of people who um, don't have to follow these policies were, you know, divorced couples. Uh, if your firstborn had mental or physical disabilities, uh, international marriage, or uh, if you have twins or multiple so, births. So actually, there's a lot of uh, yeah, exactly. different reasons why people would be able to have more than one child, which is yeah, exactly. far from the perception, I think. Yeah. Okay, so what's the current status of the one-child policy? So it officially phased out last year in 2015, and from beginning of this year, a two-child policy um, is implemented officially. Oh, right. And that's probably so. due to the fact that China has developed at such a rate of knots that yeah. they are able to uh, accommodate and feed more people. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I suppose the people at the top have done the maths and realised that there's We've enough... got an ageing, older generation yeah. yes. that are going to be needing taken care of. Yes, and there's only one and it's going to be and it's going to be a big drop of population, you know, when yeah. uh, the baby boomers are. Um. Yeah, yeah. In, interestingly, as a sidebar here, they got in in Japan. I've heard that they got the opposite problem. Oh yeah, it's a very it's well it's very de- it's a declining population mm. because I, I I got a friend that lives in Japan, and he says that. I don't know if it's true or not. It's quite funny, but he says that because the the young men are just becoming very uninterested in the opposite sex. Oh, really? Yes. He says they're too busy looking at the comics, looking at the, <laughs> looking at the devices, and for them, sex has almost become like a a, a spectator sport. I thought. Oh, wow. You I know, thought it's just the nerds couldn't get any yeah. girls. Yeah, they yeah. didn't want to. It's, well, he says that they're just they're so shy. They're, right. they're, they're, they're so afraid to approach girls, yeah. and and they kind of get in their kind of uh, their kicks online. Yeah, that the actual kind mm. of physical union is becoming like it's becoming we're becoming sort of detached from this kind of physical act, and that's why that's his theory on why. Japan are going to have a problem with their population because people just ain't interested in sex anymore. Oh my God! Come on, <laughs> Japanese men, get shagging quickly! Yes. Jesus, yes. come on. Uh, so yeah, interesting, Juliet. So that's another myth that we busted right. on missing the point. Did I just see that? Okay, this section is called "Did I just see that?" And in here, we're going to talk about things that when you arrive in China, you're going to see some things which are pretty damn strange and kind of get you scratching your head. And we're going to talk about these. We're going to try and explain them if we can. And if not, then okay, we move on. And the first one is one that I noticed, I don't know about you guys, when I first came to China, you see a lot of people riding bicycles and electronic bikes and a lot of the times they have their jackets on back to front. Oh, yeah. So they're putting their arms in the jacket and they're opening the zip or the buttons at the back. Yeah. And at the front is, is where the, the, the back of the jacket. It kind of looks a bit scary because you see them when, and especially if they've got like a, the, a, a hat over the face. Mm. It actually yeah. looks like they're riding the bike backwards. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some kind of crazy exorcist kind of baby, you know. Yeah. It's quite startling when you first see it. Yeah. And then after a while... I've got some theories on it, and I've asked some Chinese people about it, and they say that, um, first of all, if it's very sunny, 
they're saying it protects them from the sun. But then I think, well, wearing the jacket the right also protect you from the sun. Yeah. Because you just zip it up. Yeah. That right? That would make a lot of sense, yeah. So I'm not sure about that. Um, and another one, another person said to me that it's because putting a jacket on backwards is easier. And that's also like, for me, there's nothing difficult about putting right. on a jacket. You don't need to make that process easier. Maybe it's because if it's raining, for example, right. if you've got the back of the jacket on the front, it's yeah. more watertight than if you've got... The- a zip-up jacket on the front. I, I think, that yeah, sense? yeah, probably because the... I'm just guessing here as well. Um, probably because the if back of the jacket rain, is it... one piece. So yeah. it's more solid than you have a whole piece in that front of you. That could be, and if you're riding in the rain, it's and not going to pr- hit your front. But aren't zips, mm. you know, aren't jackets generally designed... To be water, yeah. To, like, cool. prevent that. They're not, like, they don't leak, you know, you get a jacket and you zip it and that's... It's shut tight, right? I mean, yeah, that's what you... Yeah. That's the inherent design of a jacket. That's its, that's its purpose. Yeah. That's, mm. So, yeah. And another one I heard is, is that it, 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 it's, it's like a... So, okay, they'll have the normal jacket on, like the blazer or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then they'll put the jacket on the top backwards as like a dust protector. Right. Protect from getting dirty. So they'll keep this jacket that they're wearing back overcoat. to front. Yeah, and they'll just stuff it in the back of the e-bike. And it's oh, like, because when you're on it's your like some, e-bike... It's like a, because when, you, like when, you, when out, you're on your bike... Outerwear um, kind of accessory. Yeah, the, the, the wind yeah. com- kind of comes from... Uh, it's like an improvised point. poncho. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. In that sense. But I'd rather see people wearing ponchos because, you know, frankly, it looks damn ugly. Yeah, yeah. And it looks kind of stupid, I think. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> and I, but I, I also see people just walking around with this. And also in my office where I work, they some of the girls, um, if it's a little chilly, I suppose, or... I'm, for me, it's not chilly, but maybe they think it's chilly. They also just put on the cardigan like. Oh yeah, I've seen back that. to front in the office, and I'm like, yeah. Uh, you, right. Why don't you just put your cardigan on normally? Yeah, like, this I, is the thing I can't get to the bottom of it. And well, you, you've seen these uh, blankets that have yes. sleeves. What, what are they called? Snuggy or something? Yeah, slankets or something. Like yeah. That. Yeah, I think maybe they're using it in that way. So you get everything covered in front and then you can still put your hands through the sleeves and do your work. I really yes, think true. that they're not using a jacket correctly. Like, Gav, would you... So you've worked in offices in the UK, right? Yeah, yeah. Would you do that? No, the, the local mental would do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the office. It, it would mark you out yeah, as an yeah, oddball, you, yeah, right? Yeah, and not in a good, good way yeah. either. Because I said to one of my Chinese friends, okay, and she like, thinks it's a really good idea. I'm like, okay, so would you do that in the UK? And she's like, of course. Yeah. I mean, oh, no, dear. you wouldn't, because no, it wouldn't work. No. And I, I'm all up for people, like, dressing how they want, you know, don't get me wrong, but I think in this instance... Yeah. No, I think we need to... Okay, let's just... Let's, jack, put, j- let's just put the jacket on correctly. Let's put the jacket on the if right you're a little way. bit cold, zip it up. Yeah. And if you're afraid of the sun, I think it's going to be the same anyway. Like, yes. Whichever way you wear it. Yeah. So, I, but this is a funny one, huh. and when you come to China, you're going to see a lot of these kind of funny... Uh, well, I've got one I'd like to sort of discuss for a minute. In okay. a similar kind of vein is that when I first arrived here, I noticed a lot of people walking backwards. A lot of right. people of a certain age walking backwards, like a, a 50, 60-year-old people. You'd see them walking down right. the street backwards, sometimes clapping their hands together. You know yeah. why that is, don't you? I don't know why that is, Because no. they want to go back in time. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, so if you walk backwards, then you get younger. Right. It's, it's good for your healthy. Is that right? Is that right? That's what I've heard. Really? Wow. How about you, Juliet? Have you heard I, any I don't think I've heard of that theory 
um, what I heard is that if you're walking backwards and you're using uh, your body's using muscles that you normally wouldn't use. So oh, right. so it's a, probably don't need to use. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Unless you like find yourself in a situation where you well, have you, to run backwards very yeah. fast from a wild bear. <laughs> in a well, very narrow alley. Yeah, in a very, with no room to turn around. <laughs> it's quite a scary thing to see as well. Yeah, and it's damn like dangerous gonna, as well because they don't know, look where yeah. they, you know, unless they have eyes in the back of their head, they just I know. stumbling Well, that's why you don't over. see them around anymore, I think. Yeah. Mm. It tends to be this Tai Chi kind of yeah. group of people as well that do it, that do the Tai Chi in the morning. Oh, yeah. They tend to walk backwards during the day. They try yeah. all kinds of things, don't yeah. they? <laughs> it's just downright dangerous. So if you come to China and you see an old granny walking backwards, clapping, yeah. just <laughs> step out of her way and, you know, move along. That's it, yeah. Anything, <laughs> tip. Julia, have you got any things that you could think about for this um, item, seen things in China that you would... That I would think is strange. Yeah. Well, how about, because Juliet's Chinese, is there any things that us foreigners do, us Laowai do, that you think is kind of annoying or you can't quite work out? Right, the annoying things, right, okay. Um, <laughs> the annoying things to me, um, especially before I went abroad, because now everything kind of seems quite, quite normal. Yeah, because you spent a, lot, a large time abroad. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but before that, I think it really annoyed me um, when I see a lot of, like, loud, drunk foreigners. Yeah. Not that late in the day. <laughs> and that's something we don't really have a lot in the street. Well, we're British, that's our biggest thing. <laughs> yeah. But you can yeah. kind of see how, like, that could become quite annoying for, you know, just sober people you, walking the, the street. The thing that you never see in China, really, yeah. I've never seen in China, is a drunk guy on the street during the day. You don't no. really see it. You oh, they're all in the restaurants, I know. I, yeah, yeah. But you, you know, like in the, in the solitary drinking, in the UK, you'll, every street corner in every city's got a piss pot, or, you know, a, yeah. a kind of guy that's drunk yeah. all the time. It's not really a massive problem, alcoholism, in the cities in, 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 in China. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I know, I've seen people getting drunk on business meetings when they were forced yeah. to drink. Yeah, yeah, and then they get red-faced and... Uh, yeah. But that's as, get, a, that's as a, com- a communal yeah. act. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't get people sitting in parks drinking out of... No, I, I don't think people actually enjoy drinking as much. Yeah, that's here. true, yeah. I mean, in, in England and European countries, they really yeah. do enjoy getting yeah. drunk and uh, also can be quite... Can be, that can be quite intimidating. Yeah. You yeah. Know, like groups of men... Shirt, shirtless oh, yeah. men wandering around, <laughs> yeah. shouting, you know. Yeah, and like you have in, them uh, everywhere. Yeah, I can't really defend that, Juliet, so uh, <laughs> okay. on, the, on the behalf Our of bad. all foreigners, we uh, apologies accepted. Yeah. So, yeah, next week we're going to have a couple of more uh, Did I Just See That? Yeah. From both the foreign perspective and from a local perspective. Yeah. Anybody, any listeners as well want to send in their suggestions? It will be um, great, gratefully received. Yeah, and we'll put the uh, email address in the comments section. Excellent. Well, that's it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Hey Joe. If you liked it, do please tell your friends. We'll be back next time with some more tales of expats in China.